Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Insider Podcast. Today, we are talking about the role of security companies in a pandemic. Specifically, we are talking about what clients might expect from their security company, what sorts of things security companies might expect to encounter, and the do's and don'ts of what security companies might or might not be able to do with their staff. Our guest today is Craig Harwood, former owner of one of Australia's largest security companies. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. So I guess the the big question here is, what is the role that we would expect security to play in, in a major pandemic like this? Uh, should it become a pandemic? But I think most people agree it's heading that way. We've got security working as frontline responders in retail, at events, uh, in the public, basically everywhere that is a public-facing role. What do you see as being the biggest challenges for security companies? I suppose, firstly, their roles don't change from whatever their daily roles are, but there's an impost on uh, their duties in relation to health and safety. So, um, you know, they may be asked to police uh, that type of thing in relation to first aid incidents. Therefore, there's an issue in relation to their um, equipment and what's supplied by the employer and the perception that the um, ultimate uh, company they're working for. So they might be employed by security company X, but they're at a site of another company, usually with a bigger brand, uh, you know, for example, a shopping centre, airport, that type of thing. So their roles stay the same daily, but they've got this issue in relation to first aid, uh, perception, um, and then there's uh, control of uh, the patrons attending that particular facility. And that may change in relation to, for example, at a a supermarket, there's a run on various items. And, uh, you know, we've seen in the newspaper recently and and throughout the press and the internet, uh, potential... Uh, stabbings, people pulling knives, police tasering people over toilet paper. So, you know, there's a um, an increase in potential conflict between patrons, uh, depending on how they're interfacing with that uh, client. And I, I'm assuming that one of the things that we may see are retailers, uh, like some of the big supermarket chains, putting in place these things like, you know, limits on certain items such as toilet paper or canned foods or non-perishables, whatever it may be, and then expecting the security within those retail environments to enforce that to some degree or at least assist their staff to enforce it. But from a legislative point of view, do they have any any fallback or framework on which to base those sorts of actions? Well, you can put conditions of entry to the... Re- the retailer can put conditions of entry. For example, you, you generally see it, a sign that, you know, you bag, maybe search as a condition of entry. And if you refuse, they can refuse your entry to that particular retailer. So they can put terms and conditions uh, within their uh, their shop, you know, retail outlet. Uh, that That's problematic, though, once they get... Uh, to the till to pay for it and they've got six lots of of the item instead of the mandatory two. Um, It's a difficult one for security because, uh, you know, if they're policing it, simply the retailer can not process the order uh, and then they have to deal with the fallout. So it's, you know, once again, it's communication, it's de-escalation and trying to manage your way through it. But from a... um, 
a legislative point of legislative point of view, there's not a lot there, right? Mm. It's just it will probably fall back on uh, withdrawing their right of entry, and maybe getting them on trespass if they refuse. Um, so they can refuse there to purchase the items, and obviously de-escalate for security personnel de-escalate the situation uh, through verbal interaction. Um, hopefully, it doesn't go further. Um, but if the if the customer refuses, you know. There's not a lot uh, the security can do. You know, you're not going to get into a um, physical interaction over two lots of toilet paper over the, the mandatory, you know, two. Sure. Uh, I guess we're going to find, though, there's there's environments like hospitals and healthcare centres and doctor's surgeries as well where security may be expected to provide a presence. What happens if staff who work for the security provider start turning around and saying, listen, I don't want to go to the hospital or I don't want to work at that doctor's surgery? Well, you know, we've had this in numerous other times throughout history in, in Australia where, you know, demands are put on security personnel in relation to all, all types of things. There is an exposed risk. You know, we've seen just recently a doctor get infected or doctors die as a result of interaction. So, you know, the security provider has to provide, obviously, the correct, um, you know, safety equipment and uh, make sure that they're briefed and following the, the um, health organisation's, you know, mandatory requirements in relation to minimising exposure. But I suppose the employee can nominate that they don't wish to work there and then the employer has to deal with that issue, you know, whether um, they're contracted for that particular site um, and that becomes a um, HR issue, really. Mm. If the employer were to offer monetary inducements to try and make the work more in- enticing to the employees, I- are there legal issues around that where it's almost considered putting the employee at risk and trying to, uh, for lack of a better term, almost blackmail the employee to do something they wouldn't otherwise want to do? It's an interesting term, blackmail. I don't know if that's blackmail. Yeah. It's you know supply and demand. The rules yep. of supply and demand. So the employer can offer more money, but it won't take away their um, obligation in relation to safety, PPE equipment, etc. So masks, you know, uh, gloves, proper procedures in relation to handling, um, you know, patrons or or people that go into that particular facility. So you know, often that would happen. Um, for example, if staff decide not to attend. Obviously, the security company has an obligation under their contract to provide X amount of personnel, whether it's, you know, um, per f- filling per shift, X amount of personnel, and if they can't, you know, they're in breach of their contract. But you'll generally find if, um, other than really bad, you know, companies, that, uh, you know, the top ones will uh, have the same issues across the board if it's got to that pandemic level that uh, they can't provide staff. And I think that would be across the board for the particular uh, client would be having the same problems with their internal staff, not just security staff. But, you know, the the provider can offer more monetary inducement to go um, and uh, incentivise them that way, but it doesn't uh, negate their um, obligation in relation to safety equipment. If the employer were to try and offer greater financial inducement, is that something that they can typically put back onto the client and just say, 
listen, where, you know, in, in this environment, it's proving to be extremely difficult to get people to want to work in high-risk high situations. You know, you're going to have to pay a higher rate in order for us to be able to provide the guards, or is that usually not allowed under a contract? Well, there's there's two things here. There's there's the contract, and then there's the relationship and understanding with, with the client. So... Because I guess you've got to be almost careful of appearing to extort the client. Correct. So, you know, the bigger um, customers will expect you to wear that um, as just a blip in, in a hopefully a longer term relationship. So it might be a three year contract, it might be a five year contract, it might be longer, if you're lucky. But um, you know, sometimes the client will say, "Hang on, well, this is just a blip in it. You're going to have to wear it. You're you're contracted." Others will understand, and may uh, give you some leeway. In relation to that, um, you know, particularly if your staff are dropping off because they're not attending work or whatever, and they're sick, um, you know, there may be a general problem across the board, and it's just one that the client's dealing with. But generally, they'll they'll make you hold to that contract, and uh, you could suffer penalties. But you know, obviously, a good understanding client will understand that. Hey, listen, everyone's going through this. We can't supply staff, or our staff are all sick. Um, you know. We have to extend our shifts from an eight to a twelve-hour shift to, c- to cover the shortfall or whatever. So there's certain things you can do in relation to your rosters, uh, augmenting it with you know management staff, for example. You know is another way, um, but that's a short-term fix. You know, mm. extending rosters and 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 bringing in contracted other staff, but you'll they'll have the same issue. Yeah. Now the personal protective equipment requirements that you alluded to earlier are interesting because. I imagine there's probably not a lot of security companies out there that have stocks of face masks, hand sanitizer, and rubber gloves on hand to give to all of their staff. They'll be suffering the same supply and demand issues, you know, in relation to everyone else. So most of them won't have that type of stuff. They might have a small number of PPE kits with um, gloves in there, probably not masks, and masks have become problematic, you know, of late. Everyone consuming them, particularly if they're disposable. You can't wear them multiple times to work. You know, you wear it one day for one shift, and then you destroy it. You know, we have seen in the newspapers overseas people recycling masks and ironing them and then reselling them. Yep. It's you know those sort of things are issues um, that the security company has to handle, but they'll have the same supply and demand issues. You know, where do you get it from? How much do you pay? And that might be another cost impost on, on that provider. If security companies can't get hold of PPE equipment, is it reasonable to expect them to put their staff into the field? Well, it depends. You know, at the moment, uh, you know, it's discretionary in relation to wearing it. Um, I was just up in Sydney the other day at a high-end uh, retailer near the rocks, walked in and uh, through the main entrance and all the security staff had, had it on. But the staff of all the retailers didn't. Some of the customers did. You know, there's a, a high uh, Asian interaction there. Um, you know, and that's the epicenter of that's changing now. Yeah. You know, there's more issues outside of China than there was inside now. So it's spread into other communities, the Iranians, etc., the Italians, for example. So um, yeah, <laughs> the the security company has a problem uh, if the staff refuse to work because they are not provided the correct PPE. Uh, that's probably reasonable. What happens, though, in a situation where 
security staff turn up to a, a, a site wearing protective equipment and the client says, can you please not wear that? You're scaring our customers off and making them think that we're a higher risk site than other places. It's a difficult one because we're covering you know, that type of thing, um, providing your staff with safe and reasonable equipment to provide and to work in a, and provide the services in an environment where it's rapidly changing. No one understands exactly how quickly this is actually spreading. You know, who has it? It's a long gestation period, two to four weeks, depending on who you talk to. And now we've got reinfections too, of people that have been cleared and then are falling ill and dying after they've been cleared. There's just one today in the, in, the, in China. That's not unusual. So, um, you know, we've, you've got a problem where the client has a... Um, a perception that they want, professional perception, they don't want to scare their customers, etc. But uh, health and safety overrides all of that perception issue, to be honest. Uh, and there will be discussions at management, probably hard discussions. Um, but I think most people would understand that if you're interfacing with the public on a day-to-day and large numbers of them, you're entitled to wear it if you think uh, uh, it's necessary. But you know you'd have to fall back on some sort of direction from the from the federal government mm. you know, in relation to is that reasonable, etc. Do you think it's reasonably foreseeable if this continues the way it is and becomes a pandemic and people continue to, I suppose, exhibit aberrant behaviour um, that security companies might need a surge capability where they're going to be expected to provide large number of staff to maintain public order in places like large retail environments and shopping centres and events where police just don't have the numbers to be able to do it all themselves? Yeah, I, I think most of the big providers that provide to places of mass gathering, etc., have um, pretty good models in relation to surge capacity but we know that there is a limit to that. So, for example, during the Com Games, you know, Olympic Games, etc., you know that um, there is only so many people that are out there licensed, and there's so many uh, only so many people out there that can do shifts beyond their normal work. So, if you have a surge capability uh, where people are part timers, uh, you know it's a second job for them. You know. They may decide and that's not good either, by the way, because they've got another form of income. So they do I do want to have a risk and and go and work in a place of mass gathering to get extra money when we've got an exposure risk. So we know that uh, we have a limit of a couple of thousand usually per state in general, just in general terms, that um, can pick up extra shifts outside of right the normal uh, surge. And we're talking, you know, these type of events, and you could say, you know, that the uh, 2000 you know, Millennium celebrations had a really uh, hard, um, well, it, it took a lot of resource to provide for that event because uh, it was all over the place. Um, you know, Olympics are another example. Uh, this will be another example, but we know that they have a limit. The industry has a limit, and it, it doesn't take much to get to that limit. And then you overlay people making a decision not to attend for whatever reason, their own safety, um, you'll max that out pretty quickly. So as someone who has had experience running a large security provider through previous iterations of things like SARS, 
bird flu, um, you know, swine flu and so on. What are the top sort of, you know, couple of things, five, ten things that you would recommend security providers need to do in order to pre- prepare their organisation and their people moving forward for the worst case scenario? I think the first thing they need to do is talk to their clients and understand what their needs are. They should have already done that in previous modelling and most of the professional organisations would have. But uh, reinforcing and having those discussions with the client in relation to PPE equipment, usage of it, etc. Um, and showing that they have a plan. You know, you always turn a negative into a positive when you're interacting with a client. So those conversations first and then doing your own internal modelling in relation to what can we provide, where are we going to be maxed out, and then you're going to have to make a decision on who you provide that to. Right? And it's generally, you know, your biggest clients and it's just the way, you know, capitalism works really. Yep. Um, so you have to do that internal modelling I suppose then you need um, some communication internally and externally um, in relation to those discussions and preempting everybody um, what you're going to do. So talking to your, your management team, what the expectations are in relation to that. Uh, obviously, whilst you're doing that, your procurement people are looking at um, masks, you know, sanitary um, items to hopefully negate the spread of it and this is slightly different from SARS and swine flu and all those previous ones it's a, it's a lot more prevalent right? and the media are right onto it and we've got daily or virtually minute by minute reporting globally so everyone is well aware of what's going on so you need um, good communication you need your procurement people looking at um, can I provide masks can I provide gloves when am I going to wear them how are we going to wear them you know disposable, how we're going to destroy them, all of that type of thing. And then, uh, you know, in relation to your staff management of if they get sick or show signs, self-isolation, reinforcing those government messages and um, obviously just really cutting and pasting what the government messages are and uh, sending them out. So communication is extremely important during this phase preparation obviously and getting ready for it and then when uh, this starts to if it does start to get worse and every indication is from all the experts that it will uh, that's what they're saying um, so you have to prepare for that how you're going to enact these things you know who's going to do it how your management team's going to manage these people what the company message is in relation to that and it's got to be positive it's got to be about safety um, obviously, you know, your business is about managing people and delivering a high standard of service. So you need your, your people well informed and ready to deal with this and, and and also what the client's message is interfacing daily. You know, if they're wearing a mask, you know, if someone comes up and says, uh, you know, is there an outbreak here or whatever, what the message is. You know, and it has to be aligned to your company ethos, but that of your clients as well. Yep. So it really comes down to communication and making sure your preparation is there. But, you know, the equipment issue is going to be an issue. And I suppose for a lot of security companies, they, they're not in a position to be able to just shut down and stop operating. So they would also need to give reasonable thought to what their remote worker capabilities are going to be. You know, if you've got admin staff and ops staff working in an office where potentially they, you know, exhibit signs but we don't know we don't know whether it's going to be you know coronavirus or just a common cold but they have to stay at home for two weeks 
if you've got a huge number of staff off for a couple of weeks, they need to keep working. Correct, you know, so you need to look at um, what that impact is, you know, what people's um, sick leave entitlements are, you know, make sure that it, that process back of house is all uh, in place. You should be already, um, but, you know, have an understanding of what the exposure is in relation to your sick leave. You know, there's a financial impost here and you can see companies are starting to go under in the aviation sector. Tourism will be next. It's impacted heavily on that and, you know, a lot of security providers work around the peripheries of that. So there will be some attrition in relation to that uh, financially. So you've got to look at your financial models as well. Yeah. And I suppose with a lot of, as is the case often with a lot of these things, get out in front with written policies. Make sure the written policies and procedures are in place. And then equally importantly, make sure everyone who works for you is aware of them. Correct, you know, and getting it out and, and getting them to re-sign it, you know, spending part of their shift uh, with the management team. The, the other um, potential impact for national or bigger providers is is management travel, yep. you know, and, you know, you know uh, security officer travel if, if they're, you know, on aircraft, etc. like that. How's that going to impact on your business? What support, what sort of support can you provide uh, for remote or for interstate? You know, you're going to have to be more local, obviously, because uh, and and use technology to um, negate travel and exposure for potentially um, your management team. And I suppose the other big one too is to de- define. You've you've sort of touched on this earlier, but define internally within your organisation what you are and aren't prepared to do. For example, if you were providing security in a large hotel chain, and there was an outbreak in the hotel and the government, for whatever reason, in the worst-case scenario, said, like they did on the cruise ship, okay, we're quarantining this hotel. No one's allowed out of their room. And hotel management said, well, security, you're going to have to enforce that quarantine. Is it within your company policy to do so? Have you decided ahead of time, no, look, we're just we're not going to put our staff in that kind of environment or we're not going to do that? I think, once again, this is you know, there's, there's two issues here. There's uh, three. There's communication. There's what the client expectations are and then it's what you're legally capable of doing, right? And and ethic, ethically <laughs> capable of doing, right? Yeah. So, you know, if someone's been locked in their room, we've seen, you know, examples just recently in the, in the press of people that have been told to go and isolate themselves and have gone out for dinner and gone shopping and then done it. So yep. uh, some people don't take that seriously and don't understand the risk that they pose, particularly if they're infected. And this is some infected people are doing this. Mm. Right? So uh, you may have to interact with them, um, once again, using your verbal skills, etc. But what happens if they, they just refuse? Well, then, you know, I think you've got to fall back on law enforcement. You know, you, you can't get into a physical interaction with these people because, mm. uh, you know, it exposes you to the risk further. Yep. So I think there's got to be some realistic expectation that, um, law enforcement needs to fall back, you know, needs to fill the gap here. And what the, what are they going to do? You know, it'd be interesting to see what uh, law enforcement's briefs are to their personnel. Do you think under the government's national security arrangements, there need to be some sort of extra powers that can be deputised to private security to carry out some of these functions that police may need assistance with? I think that is a distinct possibility if it gets really bad. Um you know, but then there's there's the rollout issue of that. You know, 
How yeah. do you deputise them? How do you uh, give them powers? What sort of training is required? Um, but I think that's a that's a long game, and that's further down the track. And I don't think, from my understanding, that they have done it in the past in relation to deploying personnel to other states, for example, for the Olympics, etc., and licensing them. You know, just uh, recognising prior, um, prior learning. But you're talking about actually having certain powers, which is a, is a completely different issue. Right, so there's a lot more to that than um, you know, just saying you can do it. Right, mm. you know they have to be trained and etc. And I think that probably wouldn't be an option at the moment. Yep, but something to consider and maybe for future pandemics. You know, obviously if we've we've had had them, we can see how quickly it spreads internationally with the way we um, we now do business and, and everyone travels and uh, aircraft can. And drop us off within hours into a different country. Um, we have to look at those things for a future, but I, I don't think a uh, future issue. But I think right now it's probably horses bolted on that time brain. Yeah. All right, Craig. Thank you very much for your time. All right. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to the Insider Podcast. If you would like more episodes like this one, you can visit the ASIL site at www.asil.com.au. Or you can check out Blurberry, Spotify, iTunes, Google Android Play and all the great places that you get podcasts from. And we look forward to catching up with you on the next podcast.